Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Mona Sutphin, a partner and head of investment strategies at Vistria Group, a Chicago-based private equity firm. Mona has also been a venture advisor, co-founder of several technology startups, and she's produced two documentary films. But she has had an extremely successful career in public service as well that has taken her all over the globe and two stints in the White House. First, she served as a member of the National Security Council staff under President Bill Clinton, and later she was Deputy Chief of Staff for President Obama. I got to work with Mona when she was in that second role, and I can tell you that the description that her mentor Tony Lake gave her is absolutely accurate. He said about Mona, quote, She is smart as hell, practical, idealistic, nice, and tough. Mona and I cover a lot of ground in our conversation, including her current work and the challenges she's tackling today. We recorded this episode on Friday, October 22nd. I hope you enjoy it. Mona Sutphin, welcome to Staffer. Thanks, Jim. It is wonderful to see you. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Um, As you probably know, I like to start asking people about how they became staffers and what their journeys uh, were all about. And it starts you know, right where they grew up and what family life was like and, you know, what their parents were like. So can you talk to us a little bit about growing up? Sure. Yeah. So first, thanks for having me. Really fun. Glad to be doing this. Um, So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Parents, I grew up in the city. My parents were both public servants. So that Uh, may be the roots of my public service gene. Although growing up, I didn't really want to do public service, but my mom worked for the juvenile public defender in Milwaukee and my father worked for the National Labor Relations Board. Okay. So public issues, you know, matters of government, community issues, these were dinnertime conversations. Absolutely. So we always had a local alderman or somebody running for something in the house uh, my father always used to say when national politics aren't working your way, you got to get as local. You just keep going until you find a place where you can add value. So I grew up in the Reagan era. My parents were on the hippie side of things. So I remember when Reagan got elected, I kept saying, but who, who would vote for him? Because we don't know anybody who would be a great Ronald Reagan supporter. Right. And they said, well, you know, there's some people with other views. So that may have something to do with it. So, yes, it was very local. They were always organizing, helping with community organizations, all that. You know, uh, your story about Reagan reminded me of, of uh, my first Real political memory, uh, Ronald Reagan came to town in 1984 for a re-election uh, campaign event, and and my mother took me out of school to see him. Um, and, you know, we're in the stands of the football stadium, and, you know, chants are going on, and people going, four more years, four more years. And so I join in. You know, I, I'm like in the fourth grade, I start chanting, four more years. And my mother leans over to me, and she says, you can chant today, but we are Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome story. Yeah. Um, okay, but back to you. Um, so here's a question: Were you into politics? You know, this was obviously in the ether. But I mean, were you were you reading about politics? Did, were you you know a, a, a youth adv- advocate or activist? No, I was the exact opposite. I had no interest in politics at all whatsoever. So if you had asked me, do I want to go into public service and work for government? I'd say absolutely not. No way. And I wanted to get out of Milwaukee. That was my number one priority. My number two priority was spending time overseas because I had a fascination growing up. I read a lot of spy novels. I was interested in the movie business. I've had this whole dalliance in the movie business, which you can get into, but that's what I thought my career was going to be. So when I was in college, I studied international relations because I was interested in I studied Chinese. I lived abroad, did all that. Um, but I went into advertising is what I did when I graduated from college. So I thought that's that was the track that I was on. And my parents, that's great. And I'll host something for an alderman one day and that'll be that. <laughs> so, OK, so you uh, you went to college at Mount Holyoke College, which has a lot of love in my family, Mona, because my wife is an alumna of Mount Holyoke. The, the dinnertime lobbying that uh, happens with my daughter, uh, who's in high school right now, you would be a good person to conference in. Um and at so at Mount Holyoke, you meet then Professor Tony Lake, 
who later becomes Bill Clinton's first national security advisor. And your relationship with Tony Lake has been described as mentor-protege. My question for you is, what made, what made him a good mentor? Yeah. So Tony, I was his research assistant. So I started international relations and Asian studies. That's what I studied. Uh-huh. Um, I had a student job. And I went to see him to see if we would, he would hire me as a research student. And it's a very funny story because I met with him and he said, but you only got a B in my class. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I'm not, I just need a job and this seems like it would be a good one. And I'm in the major, et cetera, et cetera. I think he kind of liked that because I just yeah. had no excuse for why I got not a great grade in his class. Um, and he used to do this very funny thing where all page, all papers had to be four pages long. And you know what it's like in college at that point, you don't know how to write four pages. You know how to write 20 pages. Yep. And editing is a skill that we all learn when we become staffers. And he was trying to inculcate that with people early on. Yeah. So he would throw away any pages that were over four pages. And then he uh. would end the paper with a little, a little comment saying, your argument ends abruptly. <laughs> so in any case, so I end up getting this job with him. He's actually the person who encouraged me to take the Foreign Service exam. I was in a, I obviously was studying international affairs. I'd studied abroad. I was interested in the issues. I did not want to go into public service. He said, the exam is free. You really need to study for it. Why are you resisting this idea? And I said, because I don't want to go into government and there's really no reason. But I came, I, I ran out of excuses really for taking the exam. Uh-huh. And I and I said, I disagree with our policy in the in El Salvador at the time. He said, okay, great. Then don't go to El Salvador. There's lots of other places in the world you don't agree with the policy in one place. That doesn't take the rest of the world off the table. So essentially, I took the exam at his urging without any inclination of actually going into the Foreign Service. But I went into advertising, as I mentioned, and I lo and behold, I got a call from the Foreign Service. That was a moment when I realized in my advertising career that I could work on promoting uh, Procter & Gamble brands. I was buying ad sales for middle America markets uh, for hair conditioner and shampoo, working till two o'clock in the morning. And I thought, hmm, there must be more to life than selling shampoo and <laughs> figuring out the ad buys, right? And yeah. literally the Foreign Service called, I don't know, two weeks later. Amazing. And that's how I ended up deciding to go into the Foreign Service. So I, of course, got in touch with Tony and said, what do you think? And he said, well, all along, I thought this would be a great move for you, et cetera, et cetera. And so that began our, our, our mentor-protege relationship in a professional context. And yeah. that was part of the way I ended up back in Washington working for Sandy Berger. Okay. So um, after you take that Foreign Service exam, you get the results and sort of begin that journey Tony Lake is a bridge for you into the world of, you know, foreign policy practice. Um, the next few years become so interesting for you. I mean, it's a, to go from advertising to really the, the rocket ship that you were on, you worked at the U.S. Embassy in Bangkok, where you handled the human rights portfolio for Burma. You played a role in implementing the Dayton Peace Accords, which ended the war in Bosnia. You took a hiatus to attend the London School of Economics, and then you went to New York to work at the United Nations for Ambassador Bill Richardson. You've been a staffer in numerous different contexts at home and abroad. I, I want to pause and ask you about the United Nations. What was that experience like? And what was it like interacting with staffers from all over the world? Yeah. So the UN experience was a fascinating one because it was the first time I was in that global bureaucracy. I'd served with a lot of international people, obviously, over the years. Thailand, certainly the Balkans had a lot of diplomats floating around. This was the first time that I was in the world of multilateral diplomacy in a very structured way. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, it was really boring. That was my takeaway. And one of the things you learn very quickly is that your ability to advance whatever your long-term goals are is directly related to your ability to navigate the bureaucracy, figuring out when is the moment for you to surface something. And as an American or anybody who's ever worked in international context, um, there's a lot of resentment about having Americans in the room. 
So on the mm-hmm. one hand, we're indispensable. On the other hand, we're totally annoying because every idea has to be ours and people get frustrated with us, right? So we had to be very careful and very delicate about when do you surface ideas? How do you build a coalition? How do you defang the resentments against the United States and deal with our uh, nemesis in the form of the Russians or the Chinese or whatever and move your thing forward? So you're learning that skill, but I had no conception that that's what I was doing. But the other half of it, which is even more important and gets me into Washington staffers, is I was staffing Bill Richardson, who had been in politics, right? He had been the deputy whip in the house. He had a long love for Burma, which is how I met him. I actually met him in Thailand. He came out for a congressional delegation when he was just a random, it was before he got into the house leadership. Wow. Nobody wanted to staff him because he was too junior, random congressman working on this random issue. I happened to be doing the Burma account. And so I staffed him. He came out a second time to Thailand and by then he became deputy whip and suddenly everybody was interested in spending time with him. He said, oh, no, no, Mona could staff me. She staffed me last time. So my lesson was you never know where people are going. So you just, who knew, right? So that opened me to a world of where politics, domestic American politics and foreign policy intersect. So to be working for somebody who has presidential ambitions, who has independent relationships with the White House, who had a complicated relationship with Madeleine Albright, a complicated relationship with Sandy Berger, and getting caught in the middle of your principles, objectives, and your day-to-day job was very eye-opening. Yes. Oh, I'll bet. Well, see, he eventually becomes Secretary of Energy. And so when he leaves the United Nations, so do you... And you go into the White House, into the center, right, of American policymaking, um, politics, uh, certainly a, a co-inkle center uh, to Capitol Hill. Um, you were working for Sandy Berger at that time uh, as his assistant. He was then the national security advisor. Could you talk about the national security apparatus that sits within the White House? It's it's literally right under the, the Oval, uh, you know, within the West Wing. Um but even for someone like me who worked in the White House, you know, you spend a lot of time walking around hallways. There are a lot of doors that are closed, you know, locked. Uh, the the situation room is, you know, it has a lot of different conference rooms. There's a lot of people in there. But talk about how the apparatus supports the the entire operation. Yeah. So the national security apparatus, as you point out, is probably the big, other than OMB, is probably the biggest office of management and budget. It's probably the biggest infrastructure sitting underneath the operations of the White House writ, writ large and is the nerve center of the foreign policy establishment. And so obviously you have the national security advisor reports directly to the president. Very, very small front office, if you recall. It literally sits, it's the only part of that bureaucracy that sits on the main floor with the president of the United States. So it's the white house chief of staff and the national security advisor. They're the only people who literally can walk around the corner and walk into the oval office. And there's a reason for that. Right. Um, So underneath what you're talking about, the apparatus that sits is essentially the nerve center of all of the intelligence gathering of all of the threat related information, everything that's going on around the world at every single moment. So in the basement of the West Wing is where the Situation Room sits. And it's an operations center. So if you've ever been in there, I'm sure you have many times, it looks like the movies with the screen up on the wall and lots of things flashing and people pressing buttons and people on the phone. And when you work in the in the National Security Council, that is your arms and legs. And when something is happening in real time, and I've worked on many issues where um, we're getting ready to do a military operation, it is full on, full time, every single second, people on the phone, conference room, conference calls and meetings going on simultaneously, people working the phones. Because usually if we are we are responding to something, that's a national security emergency, Um think situation in Iraq and taking military action there, or we're responding to something, say like a 9-11, which I was not in the White House, but I know exactly what was going on. You are working the phones with every single leader of every single country simultaneously with the UN, with the military, real-time intelligence, everybody sitting there trying to understand what is hap- what just happened, what are our options, how do we make a decision, what are the consequences of our actions, and you have to do it in real time. 
So it's an incredibly high intensity place. That's really the nerve center where all that comes together. And obviously they're supporting the national security advisor who in turn is supporting the president in real time, typically. So that and classic so photo of bin Laden where they were doing the bin Laden raid, like I've, the stress level, when you see the people's faces, everybody else who touched any of that before the people walked in the room were feeling that in, sp- in spades. Yeah, I can only imagine. And so you were supporting Sandy Berger in his role as national security advisor. Um, there were uh, you know, certainly moments of really peak crisis. Um, but on a week to week basis, you know, you I- I'm curious how you supported him so that he could advise the president. So even when you're not in the crucible of a crisis, the national security world it runs at a higher RPM. There's sort of it's always up there, and you're sort of making judgment calls of like, okay, is this something that the president needs to know today, the next hour, next five minutes, or tomorrow? Or in fact, he can wait until the weekend and it's okay. And um, the other thing you have to detect is where's there consensus and where's there's a lot of disagreement. Because the things where there's lots of disagreement, as you well know, you have to spend a lot of time trying to understand is there any consensus at all. What are the options? So the way we used to call it, call it is what are what's the option set? What's the middle option? What are the extremes? What's the most we would do? What's the least we would do? And try to cabin what decision does the president of the United States need to make? And what are the consequences of each of those decisions? So imagine a situation like North Korea. You could go to war, nuclear war with North Korea. Probably not a great option. You could do nothing. Also not a good option. So, but within that gradation, what are your various options? What really would fly politically and otherwise? What's the military willing to support? What's the intelligence telling you, et cetera, et cetera? What's possible diplomatically? So a lot of our time is spent doing that, meaning Sandy convening principles to work, work through the biggest strategic challenges that you could see looming that you knew the president was going to have to make a decision on, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but a couple of years down the line or months down the line and things that need the ball, the seeds need to get planted today if you hope to have something happen six months from now because nothing happens immediately, right? So I'd say that was the ambient issues. But every day we had meetings in half an hour increments. And my support of, of Sandy was essentially, he would always say, if you don't think it's ready for the president to see it, I don't want to see it. What often happens with staffers, it's true for every staffer, um, you are a gatekeeper, so you have a lot of power with people who, in theory, have more power than you, but not really, because they can't get around you either. So early on, you have people test that assumption and say, I'm going to walk in the door. And Sandy, helpfully, would say, "If has Mona seen this? And they would say no. And he said, then I'm not ready to talk about it. Right. So we had a very good relationship that way. And our only rule was that I would not intervene in meetings if I disagreed with the direction of the meeting and I would come back to him later and we would talk about it one-on-one. So I had a lot of influence on the actual direction of policy as well, but he was like, let's just keep that between you and me. Because you're watching, you're seeing things that I won't see because people put right, on right. a different, slightly different um, position when they're in front of the National Security Advisor than they do when they're in the sausage making part of the factory. Yeah. Wow. What an experience. What a window to the world. Um, after that experience, you went to the private sector and had a number of things that I want to um, uh, come back to you on because your next stint in public service was when President Barack Obama was elected, 2008. You supported him during the campaign, uh, again, advising in the, in the realm of foreign policy. When he became, when he took office in 2009, you became his deputy chief of staff and your portfolio was policy. But given the circumstances that we were in at the time, it was largely domestic policy that we were dealing with. So tell me, how did you make that transition? I know. How crazy is that, right? Um, even now, I think, what, what was that about? But so, yes, yeah, so I supported Obama. Um, uh, my husband and I had um, knew Pete Rouse, actually, even before Obama. That's how we got into the Obama ambit is he had gotten elected. We were friends with Cassandra Butts, if you remember Cassandra. They were looking, they really wanted to have Pete potentially be chief of staff. And we were people who knew him pretty well. Many of us who knew the groups, both groups, were cajoling Pete into maybe coming in and being chief of staff. And as 
I think Lord knows he said he would do it for six months or something and get him settled. Meanwhile, you know, seven years later. So, um, so I got brought into that, that world and in the campaign, yes, I was doing my classic, I would say foreign policy coordination at the time with Dennis McDonough, um, who was the lead person working for Obama as an employee. So there was a small group of people that actually worked directly for the campaign and worked for then Senator Obama, who were working on policy stuff. And then we had this entire apparatus, shadow NSC, of volunteers who were helping advise on China, India, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. I was doing Southeast Asia, South Asia and East Asia and had some senior foreign policy people uh, who were advising me and then a whole mountain of people writing talking points and prepping him when he would take trips and that kind of thing. So we had a shadow version of the NSC operating. Um, and that's what I was coordinating. So when we got to the transition, um, I actually had no inclination that I would go into the White House. That was not even at all on my radar. I had two really young kids as I'd already been in it. So I knew it was a 24 seven thing. I did not want to do a foreign policy job because I did not want to get woken up three times a night. Um, and the world is obviously much more complicated by 2008 than it even was when I was in the White House earlier. So I was in the mode uh, in the transition of let's, I'm one of the people who needs to just make sure the transition works well. And that was my goal. Uh, and John Podesta's goal, a whole group of us happy to get you going. It's wonderful. At one point, a, a mutual friend of Pete's actually reached out to me and said, so how serious are you about not serving? Like, would you ever consider doing anything? And I gave my spiel, I got the young kids, I don't want to do foreign policy. I can't think of a job that I would want to do that would make sense at this stage because see, there's so far out in the hinterland from government. I'd really only want to do something that's at the core. I don't know what that is. And they said, oh, but you'd be willing to it. If, if, and I said, well, you know, if I thought it was compelling. And they said, well, yeah, of course. So they called back and said, well, they want to talk to you about a job, but, but I didn't know what it was. Um, and I said, well, do you think I think it's compelling? And she said, yes, I, I, I do. So, of course, then I started working the phones and I realized what it was. I remember talking to my husband. I was totally floored. And I said, what do you think? I mean, we got a 13-month-old, like, what are we going to do? And he oh, said, you God. absolutely have to say yes to this. He said, we'll figure it out. Like, did you absolutely, the answer is yes. We'll figure it out. It's going to be fine. And so that's how, so my interview was literally five minutes with Rom, who I knew from the Clinton world, right? And I remember asking, well, Rom, why would you want me to do this job? Because it's significantly domestic. And he said, yeah, but you got me, Pete, Jim Messina. And he said, the reality is we have 150,000 troops on the ground in Afghanistan. We have all this stuff going on in Iran. I need somebody who feels comfortable in the national security realm, dealing with the trade issues and other things because we've got a group coming in. They've never been served in the White House, much less in the national security thing. And he said, you know how intimidating it can be the first time your CIA is briefing you or whatever. And he said, we have to demystify that for people. And I said, okay, yeah, like that sounds good. And he said, but you have to understand, you're going to mainly be doing domestic. And I said, well, I love that because (laughs) I don't really want to do the board policy thing anymore anyway. So it's perfect. So you mentioned you know, there weren't many people who had worked in previous administrations in, in the new Obama administration. Tell me how that experience in the Clinton White House helped you. Oh, immensely. The cadence of how, how to convene meetings, how to coordinate people, what the cadence is of a book going in, for example, to the president, all of that, that apparatus was incredibly familiar to me. Yeah. Where the sticky points are, what is OMB doing? Why do you bring them in? And when do you bring them into conversations? All of that was all second nature to me. Obviously, the national security part was even more second nature. Um, and so the interesting thing for me and Rom, which we talked about here and there, is the personality of the person sitting in the Oval Office. They have a big impact on the way that bureaucracy works. So some people are big readers, for example. Some people like to be briefed orally. Some people like to make a lot of decisions. Some people like to make fewer decisions. So you do need to figure out how much do they want to read? Are they, will they read a 100-page paper? Do they only want to read a two-page paper? So those kinds of things. So the, the structure of it I had really down. And I remember telling people, you have a couple of missteps from a policy perspective. You didn't bring an agency in at the right time. There's a left-hand, right-hand coordination problem. Let's just create a working group and figure out what we all know. 
that seemed very second nature. And so in that sense, it was quite helpful because I could tell my colleagues, listen, we need a working group on this because we've got too many moving parts. Nobody really knows what everybody's doing. Let's just get everybody together. We'll figure it out. And then we'll go from there. So little simple things like that made life yep. easier. You know, the um, an important moment uh, in the life of any staffer is when you are in front of the boss. And depending on your level, right, sometimes you get a lot of time with the boss. Sometimes you only get a few moments. And you were one of the very small, you know, handful of people in the White House, in the world, who had regular access to President Obama. Um, there's a morning meeting every day where, you know, top issues are discussed. Just talk to me about your preparation for those meetings and what you found, you know, really worked or at least really satisfied the types of things that President Obama would want to know about any given issue. Yeah. So, um, as you know, we had an early morning meeting with Rom, our, our front office meeting, as we would call it, which is essentially the chief of staff's office, plus the head of the National Security Advisor, usually the deputy, Tom Donnell, and Ron Klain, who at that time was working for Vice President Biden, um, and a couple of others, Phil Shalero, who did Ledge Affairs. So it was a senior group of people um, really chewing through the day and kind of the rest of the week. Uh, scheduler, obviously, Alyssa. That's really where we would go through a shorthand, a long version of what we ultimately would do after our broader morning meeting and then going in with the president, right? So we have this little small group. We kind of know what our game plan is. We then would go into the larger group meeting, which is all the various apparatus within the White House, much larger meeting at 8.30, which is always interesting because that's where the surprises would pop up. And Ron would always say, somewhere in this entire complex, the next crisis is being developed because somebody made a really stupid decision and tried to fix it is what he would say. Our job yeah. is to know that, that, that that's, that's actually happening and try to grab it. So the worst three letters would always be when somebody would come see me was I tried to fix it. I guess that's four or five <laughs> words. But I would say, oh no, that's terrible, right? Because you've now limited our ability for maneuver because decisions have been made to try to fix it, right? Crises that would emerge out of 8.30 that we didn't have, had time to talk about, then we would quickly go, okay, is this something we need to deal with or not? That's my, at that point, we would then sit down with the president and say, okay, this is the game plan. What I found really interesting about him is he was incredibly, um, like Clinton, very disciplined about reading, very could compartmentalize at a level that I found stunning in terms of recall a very, very limited, very nuanced points in a conversation that was nine months earlier, that when it resurfaces, he would say, oh yeah, but in our last meeting, you said it was X and now you're saying it's Y. So what's changed? He was always very focused on the kind of the efficiency of his time. So I'd say all the way through, but certainly early on, he would sometimes pull me or anybody aside and say, that was a total waste of my time and I don't want to have a meeting like that anymore. And he would say things to people all the time. I don't need, I'm not in college, right? I don't need the, the lecture. I read the materials. So are we making a decision today? Or are you here just to tell me more about the thing that I've already read? And <laughs> you go through that once or twice. Yeah. Like, okay. You don't want to do it a third time. You don't want all to right. do it a third time, right? So, <laughs> um, so I'd say that was one thing you learned very quickly, which is what, why are we asking for his time? And can we actually articulate that? And the other thing he was very, very good at, better at probably than Clinton, I think, was detecting um, fake consensus. Hmm. So we would go in because, of course, nobody wants to have a screaming match in front of the president in the Roosevelt Room or in the Oval Office. But he was a very, very, very good at detecting this just does not seem like there's real agreement here. And he would kind of poke at people to say, well, do you really agree with this? And of course, 10 minutes later, we're going to be screaming again. <laughs> so saying, I'm surprised, Melody, that you would agree with this thing that Larry Summers, because, you know, typically you guys would not be on the same page. So tell me about that. Right. And then little bit lo and behold, like, yeah, well, actually, I totally disagree with the entire thing. But I agreed to go along with it because it was midnight and we didn't want to fight anymore. So. Right. Oh, fascinating. Well, and let me ask you about, you know, your experience based on who you are, like in, in that, you know. The world has changed over our lifetimes. Rooms are more diverse than they were, you know, 
20 plus years ago. But I'm sure there were times that you found yourself in rooms or around a conference table where you may have been the only woman, you may have been the only African-American, you may have been the only, you know, of either. So, you know, how, you know, when you're in those spaces and and even if the the room is, you know, somewhat diverse, you you know, when I think of all the people you name check, there are a lot of high powered, you know, strong personalities. How do you make sure that your, not just your voice, but your perspective is heard, even if it's not going to win the day, it's at least heard and considered? Yeah, it's very challenging, I think. I think people don't appreciate how much your currency is challenged by the way you look implicitly. There's a lot of implicit bias. And if you're of color, you're a woman, everybody is always telling you, you have to be 10 times better than everybody else in order to get get heard. Um, I think that's true to some degree. You're a, you, it's harder to recover from mistakes. People remember them longer. They don't give you the benefit of the doubt. So I think all yes. of that is true. Um, and has been true. I think it's true in life, period, and definitely true in government as well. Interestingly for me, coming into the Obama realm, because I had been in the, in the, in the foreign policy world where I often was the only woman, so, and definitely the only person of color. So when I first joined the State Department, in uh, it's wintertime, and I remember walking to work. It was cold. I had a pantsuit on. And halfway through my day, I had a very senior ambassador-level woman, assistant secretary at the time, say, I think it's really great what you're, what you're doing. And I said, I, I wasn't even sure what she was talking about. And she said, you know, you're wearing pants. <laughs> and I went, to the, I went to the cafeteria at the State Department, and I realized I was the only one wearing pants. People were, this oh, is the 90s. Incredible. People were still wearing skirts. <laughs> Women <laughs> and hoes, right? So, wow, okay. And even early on, I would go to meetings and some of my best mentors, I would walk into a meeting and people would say, I take cream and sugar, where people would wait for their, they're expecting somebody else. So it is what it is. And somebody, you know, a colleague would jump in and go, oh, no, 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 Mona's the note taker in this meeting. She, she's a foreign service officer. And of course, it's a terribly embarrassing thing for them. I kind of could care less, but it's, I've gotten used to it, right? It's just the way, it's just the way it is. So when I got to the Obama White House, I thought, this is heaven. I mean, if you look around, right? So you have this top scheduler is a woman. The person running healthcare is a woman. The person running the DPC is a woman. The person running our energy transition is a woman. Half of them are of color. Valerie Jarrett's a color. So I was thinking, this is nirvana. I have never worked in a, in a place where... I look around the table, there are other people who even look remotely like me in any way, shape, or form. Of course, when I went to the national security bureaucracy, it's the same as usual, but that was the default. And even that was more diverse, right? So um, to your point, it's a big issue. And I think the one thing that I, I've concluded after, even after the experience with Obama is you have to get very comfortable with the power that you have. And you have to be willing to exercise that power when need be. And you have to use it judiciously, but with authority. And so I had always been hesitant to have big dust-ups with Larry Summers on a variety of things, even though we disagreed on several things. Um, But after a while, we got into a couple of different things where we just were at odds, and I took down what it was that he wanted to do. And after that, I realized, okay, he respects me more as a result. And from that point going forward... We had a very different relationship, right? And women, I think, sometimes are are hesitant to grab and project power, the power that they have, uh, and I'm not sure why exactly, but you need to. You are the second second person to distill that um, down to know your power. The only other person I know who has distilled it that I've heard so well is Nancy Pelosi. It's the title of her book, Know Your Power. I mean, just so well put from beginning to end. Um, Well, and that, you know, your environment changed after the White House. You went into the private sector, which has also been exceedingly, you know, amazing. You uh, worked at Stonebridge Albright, the international business consultancy. You've co-founded technology startups. You were a managing director at the multinational investment bank, UBS. 
you've produced two documentary films, uh, and today you are a partner and the head of investment strategies at Vistria Group, uh, a Chicago-based private equity firm. Um, there are a lot of um, misperceptions I've found between those who work in public sector and those who work in the private sector. They both think things that just aren't right about one another. What are some of the things that you bring from your time as a staffer to you know, the private sector in, in your work today that you want the people you work with to understand? So one of the biggest issues, I think when you're in government, you think that the private sector, well, it's really well funded and everybody is aligned on the goal, which is to be profitable and make your shareholders happy or whatever it is. Um, it seems seamless and smooth and structured and everything is working properly, right? And the private sector people think the government is filled with a bunch of idiots who can't figure out why, why is this never working right? And one of the things, one of the early conversations I had with a couple, I won't say who it is, who came into the Obama administration, it had been a senior executive. One of the first things he observed is how brilliant everybody was and how his default assumptions about when you have full information of all the consequences and the legal constraints and the policy constraints, the political constraints, how hard it is actually to come up with what the right answer is. And yes. by the time it gets to the White House, the right answer means by definition, there are going to be losers. As you recall, our, our tagline was always like, if it was easy, somebody else made the decision a long time ago and took the credit, right? So the realization of the complexity of policy today, the complexity of the interaction between the private sector and the public sector in the United States, but certainly globally, has just increased exponentially. And the level of, of technical expertise savvy and knowledge you need in order to advance policy goals is just much higher, I think, than people appreciate. And anybody who then interacts realizes that pretty quickly. So that's on that side. On the other side, um, one of my shocking things when I got into the private sector in a really deep way when I went to UBS is one, how everybody is still divided, just like in government, because it turns out people have totally different agendas, just like in government. The agendas are different. They all are aligned in the same sphere, but they still very, very strongly held disagreements, limited budgets, people doing all kinds of bad bureaucratic behavior, just like in government, um, politics, who knew? Politics okay. are everywhere. Turns out politics are in the private sector as well. And the bureaucratic agility to understand this is what we're being rope-a-doped here. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we have to decide. Do we want to go around the wall? Do we want to go over the wall? Do we want to blow up the wall? That's like the options, right? And we need to think about all the context of what it is that's going on in order for us to accomplish these objectives inside the bank. I found that that to be very second nature. Right. right. Some of my other colleagues who were new from the, who had been in the private sector, but not in a big, big international institution like UBS, it was very unfamiliar. So I, I thought it was, yeah, I've seen all this behavior, different topics, same behavior. Right? So that I found, it, it served me incredibly well. The other thing that served me incredibly well was making decisions on limited information. As you know, in government, if you get to 60% information level before you have to make a decision, it's a good day. That ability to make decisions and execute and feel comfortable understanding what you don't know is something that is second nature in government and when you get into the private sector is highly, highly valuable, valued because most people don't want to take those risks because they don't want to deal with the consequences of being wrong. But in the private sector, that's how you make money, right? Yep. Is, is doing things before the next guy. If all you're doing is following your competitors, you're not doing very well, right? So you got to feel comfortable stepping out into unfamiliar territory. So both of those things I feel like have... Uh, those are both... Great and really interesting. Um, let me let me uh, take a deeper dive now on your current work at the Vistria Group, uh, which is a private equity firm. And, you know, let's be honest, private equity gets a bad rap today in the political realm. So what's something you would like, you know, staff on the on the Hill or in, in public service or just the public generally to understand about the role of private equity, what it does and and what Vistria Group's perspective on it is? 
So a couple things. Um, one, I've never been shy of being in controversial fields. So that's, so this is, <laughs> this is like that. And I understand why people are upset, angry, skeptical about private equity because some of the worst behavior that people have seen has come in the, some firms goal of essentially making money at all costs, regardless of the bottom line, regardless of the impact and pain and cost it takes on their customers, on their stakeholders, on the communities in which they operate. But I would say a couple of things to that. Number one, um, the private equity industry has been the source of capital for some of the best companies in American history. So if we did not have, we invented private equity in the United States. If we did not have it, we would not have some of the best, most innovative companies because it turns out it takes money to get a company to go, as everybody knows, and access to capital is a big issue. Um, we can talk about whether or not there's enough access to capital with the right folks, but the idea that there's somebody willing to put money on the table before it's known to be a success is essentially the special sauce that's made the American economy as thriving, as innovative as, as it has been up until this point. So that's number one. Number two, not all private equity firms are alike. And unfortunately, because it's a little bit of a black box of what private equity does, a little bit like investment banks, like what do they do? Nobody really understands it. And so you get lumped with the worst actors. And there's not anybody defending the private equity industry, really. Every Firms are individual firms, right? And so um, where Vistory comes into this is from a really different perspective. So I'd say our approach as an investor has always been that um, if you put capital behind companies that are going to improve society, so improve education outcomes, improve healthcare outcomes, and you do so responsibly through your conduct and conduct ESG type conduct, as well as your products, meaning you're increasing the ability of people to get a nursing degree or whatever the business is of the day, um, that those, those companies should be worth more. And the reason they should be worth more is because they're providing a valuable product that's improving lives of people. They're treating their stakeholders properly. They're improving the community in which they operate. People like working in the place. They're being paid well. That is what you want and that those companies should be more valuable. And that's what we're set out to prove. And a corollary to that is something that um, the two co-founders and I are, always, are very passionate about and our colleague John Samuels as well which is that we think this is essential to really drive a conversation about the future of capitalism in this country and the fact that it has not been working as advertised. We invented it. We can change it. It's not like it's set in stone. The dynamics around capitalism have ch changed over the years based on differing needs. And the reality is if this, that the American dream is out of reach of the vast majority of Americans, it's not going to work, right? So... <laughs> We have to lead a conversation on that. That's what we've been doing. And we intend to continue to do that among our private equity peers, right? Because that's, that's where we sit now. Well, and that conversation isn't just an internal one. You are, uh, you're creating a podcast, uh, which I can't wait to listen to. You are curating these conversations in a really thoughtful way. And, and just hearing you talk it's um, it's it makes it's no surprise to me that you and people like John Samuels are the right people to be participating and leading these conversations because, you know, when you're talking about weighing information, yes, information is a, a crucial thing to weigh. So are equities. And in government, you're weighing information and equities all the time. And that's, you know, you're bringing that equity conversation into you know, the capitalism conversation. Into the belly of the beast, one might argue. The good news is, is that we were pretty early in this conversation. So Marty and I and a couple of people had a long dialogue about our concerns that the capitalist model and the way private equity was perceived and frankly, what some of the worst behavior, that it was really threatening the entire support for capitalism as we know it. And we see that it is a really important corollary to our democracy. It's the way our economy functions. And our theory is that people aren't necessarily opposed to capitalism. They just don't like the way it's working because it's not working fairly. And people can see that in a way that maybe they couldn't 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that if we didn't lead on a conversation, then who would? Because we care and we understand the equities as you articulate them. 
And so we ought to convene a like-minded group and just see whether or not we can reach some alignment. So we convened, this is before the pandemic, it's before George Floyd, a very small group of private equity investors, capital allocators. So we're talking pension funds, some elected officials, um, Jack Lou, Rahm Emanuel, a bunch of people in the space and just said, what do you think about this idea that private equity has a really important voice in shaping the way capital gets deployed in order to have better social outcomes? Do we think that there is a way to lead on this topic? And the answer was, was yes. And so that led to a series of roundtable conversations we've been having, obviously post-George Floyd, that have burst onto and the pandemic has brought all this forward in a way that we were worried that there would be a brush fire that would get out of control. It now is here. And so this the podcast is really a desire to bring this conversation to a broader group of people who actually know care about this as we try to find a broader and broader group of people who want to get engaged in this conversation. And frankly, the best thing about private equity is we have the power to make decisions to change things, right? So we decide to diversify our boards. Guess what? We control the boards. So we're just doing it. We're not like a public company that has to worry about shareholders and proxy votes and all that. We just do it. So there's a creativity there that we really think is important to unleash. And so, yeah, we're really excited about our podcast. It's called The Future of Capitalism. Hope You'll listen to it. Hope everybody will listen to it. Um, okay. It's got uh, a couple of episodes with the CEO of CalPERS, um, with the CEO of the Pension Fund of the State of Connecticut, who are real thought leaders in this space, and a woman named Rebecca Henderson, who's been a colleague of ours, who wrote a book, who's a Harvard professor, who wrote a book of reimagining capitalism in a world on fire. And so it's a really thoughtful conversation about where this dialogue is headed, but it's real and it's growing and it's important to continue to lead it. So, Oh, well, I'm, I'm excited for it. The future of capitalism. When it comes out, I will, uh, you know, put it through the staffer channels as well so people can follow up and listen. Um, I could talk to you all day, Mona, but I do have, I need to move to a couple of questions that I like to ask. They are recurring segments. Um, one of them is called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time when you made a mistake and what you learned from it? As you know, we decided we wanted to try to close uh, Guantanamo Bay, and we did an executive order to try to close it. And one of the early issues was, obviously, what are we going to do with all the people? And one of the big mistakes that I feel some responsibility for was allowing the conversation about bringing people to the United States get so far along that it it burst into the political realm before it was really ready. And I remember after a, a meeting that we had saying to myself, we need to stop this, that this conversation right now, because we're, we're not ready really domestically to deal with the spillover effects. And I didn't do it because we were moving fast on something else. Right. And of course it spilled out into the open and that took Guantanamo into a totally different place than it needed to be. And I think in the end, really set the whole thing sideways in a way that we never really recovered from. So it had a lot of real world consequences. Other people have told me, well, you shouldn't take all the blame because there are lots of other people. Of there. But I saw of it course. and I did. I saw it and I felt it in my gut. And I didn't say something because we had a whole group of people say it was the group thing thing. We had thought it through. This is what we're committed to doing. We're under this tight timetable. And it was a huge lesson to trust your gut and use your power that you have. Right. Uh, the, those lessons are so hard. They, the experiences are just excruciating to live through. Um, but you don't really grow without sometimes, right, bumping your toe or right along the way. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, I always say for people is um, owning up to your mistakes is, is super important. So when people would come and say, oh, I tried to fix it, I'd always say, just... You, you have to come clean with what's going on because otherwise you can't really fix it. Then you're going to continue to make more damaging decisions down the line. Right. And the stuff comes back eventually. Right. So you can't, there's no, there's no rock that won't get ultimately uncovered. Yeah. Truth is always your friend. It's it, including with yourself. Yes. Right. right. It's not right. good. It doesn't feel good along the way. And you're thinking, am I going to get fired? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Okay. So my last question for you, it's one of my favorites. If I were able to raise the money to build on the National Mall a Hall of Fame to staffers and put someone in there who you admire, who would you nominate to the Staffer Hall of Fame? 
Oh my gosh. The Stafford Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know who I think I would nominate is Rob Neighbors. Ah, uh, yes. So Rob Neighbors, who was assistant to the president for legislative affairs, he was also, I think, deputy OMB director, um, longtime uh, top appropriations staffer under Dave Obie on Capitol Hill. I am probably forgetting uh, you know, other uh, roles that he has had. I mean, just fixer, brilliant. Um, high EQ, so tell me- high, high IQ and, and low ego and... The ability to do what the best staffers do, which is not put your thumb on the scale too much and allow your principal, the person who's supposed to be, who's empowered, who's elected, who's empowered to make the decisions, don't skew it so much that they can't make decisions and try to keep their decision space open. Because that's really what you're trying to do is keep, keep the process rolling so that Sandy Berger, you have your options. President Obama, you have the, the decision is clear. What decision are we making? Have we fully thought through all the consequences? Requires you to not have a point of view. And I'd say the big difference between the super staffers and the ones who should be in the Hall of Fame and the ones who aren't, they understand that they are not there to make the decision. They're there to empower the person who's making the decision. Yes. That is such a good nomination. Rob Neighbors is officially in. Mona, thank you so much. You are just so brilliant and fantastic uh, to have worked with. And uh, and you're so generous with your time and your insights. Um, this has just been a delight for me. And I know our listeners are going to enjoy it. And I really can't express my appreciation enough. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And it's great. I'm glad you're doing this. It's so fantastic. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.